Oh, good evening, everyone. Continues to be nice to see you. <laughs> so I've come empty-handed this evening. Uh, no questions and not quite sure where uh, I'll go with this. And I have Carol and Steve's blessing to have it go as long or as short as I... Uh, as I go. And this is something that uh, I just, I love this part of the Dhamma that it's just so direct and so ordinary and so real. I don't know many venues where it would be permitted in some ways to just speak directly about the way things are. So how are you holding up? <laughs> I remember my first retreats, the, uh, the Dharma talk was the, it's like the candy at the end of the day, if I could just make it to that talk, I know I'll make it through another day. No, it doesn't put any pressure on the teacher. <laughs> I have to be oh, something. I just want to be ordinary. I want to be real with you. My partner was just asking me before uh, coming in here what I would take with me if I were stranded on an island. And of course, that's sort of a funny question to ask, but I think she was prompting my mind to say, what's important to you? You know, it's just very quick in my mind. I'd take the Dhamma. I'd take the Dhamma with me. I find it such a refuge of understanding. It feels like a complete experience to have the Dhamma close. I was reviewing the day a little bit uh, today, and I'm having to balance a lot at the moment because I'm here with you all, and my teacher training group is also nearby doing a training. So I have to kind of plug in there when I'm not here with you. Just a little bit and seeing the kind of cycles of the mind and the moods come and go. And in certain moments, how the mind is caught uh, in some agitated state or feeling overwhelmed or being around fellow trainees that also don't like to give talks. So that's kind of triggering. talk about the Dharma talk as being this monster, you know, it's like a mm, scary monster that we have to face. <laughs> and just seeing, the, seeing these cycles of experience, we go through so much and it's so solid, so real at certain moments. And then moments later, it's gone. It seems so ephemeral and we can't even really understand why we were so gripped by that experience. And yet when we're caught in something, it's very solid. It feels inescapable almost to be at peace again. 
So being a human being comes with this territory. As we sit together, stay with our own experience long enough that we can witness what's really going on and not running away into endless activities of becoming or escaping. We really get a flavor for what this human journey is really about. You know, no one ever said that it would be easy. And it's funny because here we are, all of us. Do you know you're here? We do know we're here when we practice more and more. But here we are, and it's kind of a mystery how we got here. None of us really, I don't think, can remember asking to be born. It's strange to be, find ourselves in a body and mind in this life. And it comes with its own features. So someone was asking about uh, something that was mentioned uh, kind of briefly, these three characteristics that the Buddhists uh, spoke frequently about. And there's a lot of different lists that is in the Dhamma, in the canon. Um, There's endless lists, so if you do like lists, you can just get your heart's content. Um, We talk about the three jewels, the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion. There's the five faculties, the spiritual faculties, seven factors of awakening, so many goodies, good things to recognize. And it's sort of extraordinary that the Buddha could look into this ongoing experience and pull out all of these structures that he found as useful tools or devices to use in our path, in our contemplative path. So one, one piece that I was thinking maybe I'd talk a little bit about is uh, the three characteristics which are anicca, dukkha, and anatta, so impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and this element of not-self. And one of the things that we, if we Think about where do we normally try to find our contentment in life. We normally are running towards things in a way because we misunderstand experience. We don't see uh, the actual reality of things. And we don't see the way things are we chase after or try to avoid things because of this basic misunderstanding. These uh, three characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, not self, 
is true for every phenomenon, every phenomenon of our experience. There's nothing that is not uh, described by those characteristics. And this is not something that the Buddha was fabricating. He wasn't trying to say, believe this to be true. He was saying, this is the way characteristics are, the way phenomenon are, objects of experience are. We don't see it, so we have these distortions of perception. And there's these distortions, these four distortions that are described as being in any act of perception, we normally view that which is impermanent as being permanent. That which is truly unsatisfactory, we take to be potentially providing some lasting joy, some lasting happiness. And we take that which is truly not self to be happening to me or belonging to me or in my control. And then there's a fourth distortion of perception, which is that we uh, take to be that which is uh, not inherently beautiful or attractive to be attractive. We don't see that that's based on perception, our conditioned experience. So we impute beauty into something that is just what it is. So anytime that we are not actually seeing things as they are, we can look and see, is the mind seeing this as permanent? Am I taking this personally? Is there some way that I'm not understanding this experience as being uh, dukkha, just the phenomenon that can't provide a lasting sense of fulfillment? There was a teaching by Ajahn Chah that's well known about his cup. And apparently he had a favorite cup at the monastery. And people saw that he seemed to really always take this cup and really enjoy it. And of course, students are always trying to poke holes in the teacher and find how they're flawed and see, yes, see, they actually don't know what they're talking about. Or, so they, someone was asking him, you seem to be really attached to your cup. How is it? You know, it's just the cup. And what about non-attachment, non-clinging? And he said, you know, the difference maybe between what you see and what I see is that I see this cup is already broken. That understanding, very deep understanding that things are impermanent. So just yesterday there was a, a monk from England that was uh, visiting down at the community center, giving the Monday night uh, talk, Ajahn Amaro. And we were up here listening to Steve while Ajahn Amaro was speaking down there. But I was told that he was uh, reflecting on this impermanence of things and brought up the Ajahn Chah story and then began reflecting on the impermanence of this beautiful new building. (laughs) And apparently he went on and on about how easy it is to get even attached, of course, to, we we don't want to 
believe that these structures, something might happen to them. And the people that had put in the last, you know, two years or three years of their life's efforts were just praying that they would stop talking about, you know, it's like, just please knock on wood, don't. So, but this is, a, this is a spiritual seeker's job in some ways is to be really willing to recognize the reality of, of human experience in a way having courage to, to do that, to reflect, you know, in just very simple ways. Yes, this life is impermanent, this body is impermanent. And see that when we get really attached to things, other people, and we assume something won't come to an end, it's amazing, that little assumption it will hurt at some point. The love isn't what hurts, really. True love, that kind of quality that doesn't need anything, need the other person to be any different than their own natural expression of who they are. That's a very beautiful quality. And I know oftentimes in the Dharma, it's easy to think that we, don't, we stop loving because of this idea of non-attachment, non-clinging. But to really be open to life as it is means we actually can meet, in some ways, for the very first time, life. It's, it's expression. We have no more agenda for the emotion, for the thought, the frustration, the doubt. No agenda. Now I remember saying no agenda, but I don't know what that was about. <laughs> so. Relationship. <laughs> true, love. true love. Oh yes, true love. Yeah, I hope you're getting a sense of what the Dhamma is inviting us towards. You know, as we stay here, uh, just in a very simple way, and as Steve reminds us a lot by following the precepts, you know, not saying harmful things intentionally, not causing harm and agitation, the mind begins to settle down and we're able to be with our experiences. It's a very lawful process. We don't need to try too hard. You know, and really, if we were to stay here together in this way for another month, for two months, for six months. I know some of you would be terrified at the idea. 
But when the mind and heart get settled, it's very simple to be here, just breathing, walking, feeling what's happening. And as we learn how to be with that and remind ourselves that these experiences are just doing their own thing, they're doing their own job, we really learn how to open to what's here, becoming very simple and awake. This is the path of becoming a noble being. You know, it's not as far out there as it sounds. Our minds are really being purified by being here. It is a very, very real process. So this quality of dukkha, not satisfactory. A friend I heard recently, uh, I wasn't there at the talk, but someone was sharing that this idea that things aren't gonna make us happy, <laughs> even though that knowledge can be there, it still seems totally convincing that a slice of pizza just might do the trick. <laughs> if I could only get this thing, whatever it is. It's amazing those little urges or ideas that come in. And oftentimes it's in the opposite. If I could just get rid of this next experience, this current state. Yeah, but it follows very naturally that if things are changing in a very rapid way, and now, you know, science tells us, verifies that even the things that we considered very, very solid are blinking in and out of existence in such rapidity, there's really no, no solid, there's nothing solid, truly nothing solid. And so if we really understand deeply this idea of impermanence, then it follows that things can't provide this reliable source of happiness. And yet we, we chase after it. That's kind of a process, that's what we do. This uh, desire to become into the next moment. It's like we're being born into the next, leaning forward a slight irritation, slight restlessness, discomfort. This is, not, this is natural. But over time, as we really learn how to sit with different experiences, it's like the range of our ability to open to what is grows. We're no longer swayed by every little gust of wind. Things present themselves to the mind. They're seen, they're understood, and they can be let go of. Sometimes I'm 
so amazed at the process of seeing a phenomenon clearly. Like there'll be something in my experience that seems completely solid. Something that I feel like I've got to get rid of. And just through some steady awareness, the wisdom arises and really sees clearly there's actually nothing happening. And I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss what it is that we experience because what we're experiencing is so personal and intimate to our meaning and our value in life. But ultimately, behind every experience, there's really nothing there. Thoughts and emotions change. The body sensations of solidity are just moments of conscious experience being felt in the current moment, shifting, vibrating. And yet, in a blink of an eye, again, we're completely caught into the the drama of things. It's amazing. You know, and it ought to, in some ways, open the heart towards deep compassion when we recognize just how hard it is to see clearly. It's not easy. And it's not easy basically because we've, we've, uh, I don't know if we have, but the mind is just very steeped in, in, delusion, not seeing things for what they are. And it's just the, nor- the natural habit. And in being here, he- hearing words of Dhamma, reflecting on the Dhamma, reading the Dhamma, using your own wisdom, guiding yourself in the practice, these glimpses into this uh, truth, We see the Dhamma for what it is. We begin to understand that there is a body, there is a mind. We can recognize it in the present moment and we begin to taste what it is, these uh, understandings of what suffering is about and that it may be, just maybe arising because some cause, something the mind is doing. So liberating actually to begin to see that there is a process that is unfolding. It's always been unfolding and now we start to really taste what it is that the Dharma is inviting us into. I want to say something else about dukkha. Um, because it has this flavor of suffering, it's very easy for that to become this depressing idea that everything is dukkha, everything is dukkha. In our discussion with my trainees today, we we're talking about the importance, and this is something that the Buddha did name frequently, <coughs> were these very beautiful qualities of mind. 
that it isn't just greed, hatred, and delusion that's filling this, this mind and heart, because then if we think of it like that, that can become a real bother. Who wants to practice if everything is greed, hatred, and delusion? But it's actually integral to the practice to also see these wholesome factors of mind, of joy, of delight, happiness, rapture, steadiness of mind, concentration, the mind that gets very steady, tranquility, equanimity. And these are qualities that, if you haven't, if you're not abiding in them for long periods, they probably have visited you, at least for a little taste of it, little bits. We really want to bring attention to those experiences as well. This is, these are marks and signs of the practice that is developing, the confidence that's growing, the mind that is beginning to be less uh, obscured by the hindrances. Little gaps when the, when the mind is really steady and clear and awake. And dukkha, as a understanding, I really appreciated this from Saito and Tejaniya, is, well, dukkha as a thought, oftentimes is a thought of aversion. Everything is suffering. And if we think about things as being suffering, just really watch the quality of mind. Very often the mind is, is uh, filled with a sense of irritation. And it's almost like a depressing way of thinking about life. That is very different than seeing very clearly what dukkha is. Dukkha is an understanding, feels joyful. Every kind of insight that we have actually brightens the mind and heart. So when we see suffering clearly and we understand it, we're no longer suffering. It's being seen and understood. I just want to drop that in there because very often it's, it's easy to think about the Dharma in ways that leads to a sense of heaviness or, or frustration with, with experience. But there's a really big difference between thinking about the Dhamma in a certain way and really understanding it. So we want to use reflections that point us to the nature of experience and just see if the mind, you know, at times has this grumble, you know, oh, it's all miserable anyways. Nothing's worth living for. It's all dukkha, greed, hatred, and delusion. And It's funny because my mind gets, uh, it seems to get happier and happier the more it reflects on the nature of the Dhamma. If I can see something clearly, the mind's very happy with that. Really happy. Oh, great. Judging. (laughs) (laughs) Worrying. Self-consciousness. And the reason is because seeing it, I know this is the way to liberation. 
This is the, as, as I believe it's Ajahn Chah again would say often, this is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's the clear seeing of how it is in this moment. Clear seeing is different than being entangled. And that's already a huge step. It may still be that the experience has its grip on us, but now it's being met with some awareness. It's become something that's being known. So this third characteristic of anatta, um, not self, We've been dropping this reflection in an awful lot, and you may have been noticing it. These are the, the reminders of things are nature. Things are just as they are. So when we say something like greed does its job, its, it's job is to want. It's not wrong. Just greed is doing its job. Aversion is doing its job. It's expressing its nature. It pushes away, it doesn't want. Restlessness does its job. Doubt does its job. Frustration does its job. And then the wholesome qualities of mind. So this is a way of understanding what it means when we say not self. Not self is just a meaning that says things are simply what they are. They don't belong to anyone. They're not in our control. Things are simple, simply a natural expression of nature. And someone was asking, I believe I was saying in one of the groups that even when reporting uh, to Saito Utejaniya, I'd sometimes report in a way, and this was kind of early on with him, I would say, you know, I was feeling frustrated and then, you know, um, I was feeling restless and I was doubting and whatever it was, whatever sequence of events. And he'd say, you know, you may not believe this right now, but you might, at least in reporting, just experiment with saying it differently. Just say the mind was doubting, the mind was frustrated the mind was happy. And it was a way of just inviting in this little bit of encouragement to open to the possibility that I might be able to see things less personally and more just as, 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 as they are. And, and language is a very powerful influence on how we experience things. So we oftentimes in our inner mind, inner voice, we'll be talking to ourselves, and that language will be very revealing. If we say something like, I am very depressed right now. I'm feeling really depressed. What happens? It's very heavy, very weighty. weighty. I don't like this. Whatever it is. And then just by remembering and this is where bringing in the right view comes in, remembering that this is happening. This mood is happening. This experience is happening and it can be known. It may not stop it. 
and it won't. You know, most experiences will have its own momentum. But just see how different it might be at times if you find, find yourself deeply identified with an experience. How does it look when the mind has a little bit different perspective and starts to say, oh, it's like this. There's frustration, there's anger. There's this pain in the body. And it becomes something that we actually can turn the attention to and move towards it with interest. Which is so different than being caught up in the experience that there's no space to look at an experience. So I think we're all really starting to, we're not starting, but having many moments of that sort of change of experience, moving from being very personalized with it to beginning to understand uh, body and mind as it is. It's interesting watching my mind trying to find a story that would make you laugh. (laughs) What is that about? (laughs) It's like, oh, I need to see joy, otherwise things are going wrong. If we really learn how to pay attention, there is just so much to to be with. You know, not to be too mystical, but why not? (laughs) I used to think about, do I really understand what Anything, any type of experience that I thought I, I, I knew deeply. So, for example, I used to play with just thinking, do I really understand what seeing is? Seeing consciousness. Consciousness is something that, you know, I don't know if we really have a way to describe what it is, but we're immersed in our experiences of seeing and hearing, body experiences, the consciousness of the mind, emotions. They become so familiar to us that we don't really taste it anymore the way it is. And then we personalize it so deeply that we're no longer even awake to this 
moment of reality. There's a line I was reading uh, by Emerson, who was reflecting on the idea if the stars came out every thousand years and they were to come out tonight, we would all really stop and take them in. You know, the preciousness of being alive can be also taken for granted. And this is one of the things that we can do is to keep very close in our mind this transience. We are here for a fleeting time. None of us will be here, let's say 80 years from now. <laughs> How do we want to spend our time? You know, light reflections, they don't have to be very deep. They don't have to make ourselves consider in any way, but just things that brighten the mind. up to 45 minutes. Why don't we sit together for five minutes?
Thank you for your attention and for your practice. So you have an extra long gap before you might return for the evening uh, gathering. And if you're up, the stars might be out, but they're always up there. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.